President Biden is expected to sign a budget deal that avoids a government shutdown for now, but does not include more aid for Ukraine or Israel. It's Thursday, November 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, the chill in relations between two major powers over China jailing Japanese citizens accused of spying. Also this hour. The moral panic that has been induced over some horrific moments, the overreach of protest, it is a manufactured panic. The intense reactions on college campuses over the Israel-Hamas war and how schools are dealing with it. Plus, the new climate-friendly crop that's getting interest from liquor distillers. And this hour, the effort to recruit tennis players to historically black colleges and universities. In sports, Celtics win sunny in the 60s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden met Chinese President Xi Jinping yesterday. They agreed on steps to stabilize their country's relationship. NPR's John Ruich reports today, Biden hosts leaders from around the Asia-Pacific region at a summit in San Francisco. The Biden administration says the president will concentrate on three things at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, summit in San Francisco. They include improving and increasing American investment in the region, as well as investment from the region into the United States, improving international worker standards, and building a more inclusive economy across the Asia-Pacific region. The U.S. has stepped up its engagement in the Indo-Pacific, in part because of intensified competition for influence with China. Meanwhile, the city of San Francisco has spruced itself up for the meeting and fenced off a sizable swath of the downtown, where the leaders of APEC's 21 economies are getting together. John Ruich, NPR News, San Francisco. Congress has passed a short-term government funding bill. The Senate passed the legislation last night and sent it to President Biden for his signature. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says this will avert a government shutdown this weekend. I am happy to announce there will be no government shutdown. As of Friday night, the government is staying open. The legislation got bipartisan support in the House and Senate, but not from hardline Republicans. They wanted deeper spending cuts. The legislation will fund some government agencies through mid-January and other agencies until early February. Palestinian health officials say well over 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza by Israeli attacks. The fighting began October 7th when Hamas militants attacked Israel, killing around 1,200 people. Israeli troops remain around the largest hospital in Gaza. A new poll of Jewish voters in the United States finds strong support for President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, American Jews also expressed an unfavorable view of Israel's prime minister. The Jewish Electorate Institute surveyed 800 Jewish voters about a month after the Hamas attack. Nearly three-quarters of Jewish Americans said they approve of President Biden's response to the war. Haley Seufer is CEO of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, a pro-Israel group that supports Democrats. Jewish voters are very supportive of the president's policy as it relates to Israel and how he's handling the war. That appears to even supersede any partisan divides. More than six in 10 Jewish voters expressed an unfavorable view of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Meanwhile, an NPR poll this week shows a growing number of Americans as a whole believe Israel's response to the Hamas attacks has been too much. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stocks are trading lower. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Homeless families seeking shelter at Logan Airport are being turned away. The state-funded emergency shelter system is full, meaning families are being put on a wait list. 31 people, many of them Haitian immigrants, were sent back and forth last night between Logan and a state family welcome center. Local Haitian community leader Deflora Floriason says the group was about to go to South Station for the night when a nonprofit instead booked motel rooms. We send them there for tonight, so we're going to be uh, speaking to the state to see what they're going to do tomorrow night. Understand that we have children, two months old child. Logan officials say the airport is not an appropriate place to house people. The Healy administration is providing $62 million toward restoring affordability at the state's public colleges and universities. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the goal of the investment is to slow or even reverse the decades-long rise of costs at those schools. Healy's grant will cover the expected family contributions that can deter lower-income applicants. It also provides them with up to $1,200 for books and supplies, though it doesn't cover housing. Max Page applauded the move, but as president of the Mass Teachers Association, he wants Healy to keep pushing to turn back the clock. All the way through the end of the 1980s, you could go to UMass Amherst, you could work 10 hours a week at a minimum wage job and graduate debt-free. That's all we're trying to recreate. The investment draws on revenue from the fair share tax on million-dollar incomes passed by voters in 2022. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The commission, tasked with taking a look at the state seal and motto, is preparing to disband without making any recommendations. The Massachusetts seal depicts an indigenous person standing under a hand clutching a sword. The Latin motto translates to, by the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. Activists say it represents violence toward indigenous communities. The commission wants to transfer its unfinished work to the state secretary's office. The president of MIT is outlining new steps to combat hate on campus. That comes as tensions rise because of the war between Israel and Hamas. Faculty at the school will be part of a new council called Standing Together Against Hate. The group plans to lead discussions and host speakers and programming for students. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. Make it four wins in a row for the Celtics. They beat the Sixers last night 117-107 in Philadelphia. The Seas road trip continues tomorrow night when they visit the Toronto Raptors. Sunny today with a high in the lower 60s. Clear overnight, it'll get into the 40s. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-60s. Rain on Saturday and in the 50s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. 
Israeli soldiers remain inside Gaza's largest hospital today. Hundreds of patients, doctors and evacuees are there too. Al-Shifa Hospital was surrounded by gun battles for days. Yesterday, Israeli troops went in. It's part of what Israel says is a deepening invasion into northern Gaza. Meanwhile, residents in the south of the Strip say Israeli forces are dropping leaflets, urging evacuations there, suggesting the ground war in Gaza may soon expand. NPR's Lauren Freyer has been following all this from Tel Aviv. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Michelle. What's the latest from Al-Shifa today? So today, Gaza's health ministry says Israeli troops are searching the underground levels of that hospital. It says they've detained technicians who run equipment there. Israel's military, meanwhile, has been issuing videos produced, highly produced videos with music showing what it says is evidence of militant operations inside Al-Shifa Hospital. Here's one of them. There is an AK-47. There are cartridges, ammo, and all of that. This was hidden very conveniently secretly behind the MRI machine. This is an Israeli military spokesman, Jonathan Konrikis, giving a video tour of guns, grenades, uniforms. He says Israeli troops found. Now, NPR can't independently verify this. Human rights advocates say what Israel is showing us there, it doesn't amount to a Hamas command center, which is what Israel has alleged. And they say that even if Hamas did have fighters in there, it doesn't mean Israel can endanger civilians at the hospital. So that's the situation at the hospital. What about all the people who've been told to leave Where are they able to go? Yeah, Michelle, like Gaza's 2.3 million people are being squeezed into an ever smaller area in the south of the Strip. It's away from the ground invasion, but it's not safe. It is still under Israeli bombardment. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, went to a school housing displaced people, and he met a 12-year-old girl there named Maryam. She didn't want to give her full name out of fear of reprisals, but she said, you know, she slept in a school, then a bomb went off, that she had to flee again. And here she is describing what it was like to see her first tank. She's 12 years old. I was so so afraid. It became like me. It was so big and it uh, made me feel it's so afraid. Our producer, Anna, spoke to her parents too. They were carrying her school certificates. They were super proud because Miriam, they say, had the highest grades in all of Gaza last year. Her family's now in the south of Gaza, which is where Israel told them to flee to. And now leaflets have been falling there telling people to evacuate again. And people are asking, where? Where can they go? So Israel yesterday allowed fuel into Gaza for the first time since October 7th. Do you have any sense of whether that's making any difference? Not a lot. Um, Israel has earmarked that fuel only for the UN and only for transporting aid. So not for things like running water treatment plants and sewage plants and hospitals. Um, Regular folks don't have fuel for cooking. They're scavenging through the wreckage of buildings to find furniture to burn. Here is NPR's producer, Anas Baba. I'm standing on the seventh floor of my friend's house. I can smell like fire smoke everywhere. He says people are cooking on open fires in the street. The UN says the fuel that Israel has allowed in is not even 10% of what Gaza needs every day. Palestinian officials are warning that Gaza is on the verge of a total communications blackout now for lack of fuel. That is NPR's Lauren Freyer in Tel Aviv. Lauren, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. 
The U.S. is expected to avoid yet another government shutdown after the House and Senate both passed a continuing resolution that keeps the government funded into the new year. Now, the resolution does not include war aid for Ukraine or Israel, something President Biden has asked for. White House officials say supporting both is in the country's national interest, but Congress remains divided on that. Joined now by Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. He serves on the, for- on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he supports funding for both Ukraine and Israel without delay. Senator mentioned how the White House wants to bundle aid together for Ukraine and Israel. Uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson says he wants to divide that money. He doubts they have enough Republican votes for Ukraine. Is there any scenario, Senator, in which you would support breaking up the aid? No, I think we need to promptly take up and pass President Biden's supplemental request. Doing so would allow us to provide assistance to humanitarian uh, needs to meet the food and fuel and hunger needs of millions of people, not just in Gaza and in Ukraine, but across the region, to support Ukraine in their war against Russian aggression, to support Israel, and also to support our Indo-Pacific allies. I think it's in our national security interest, and we should do it promptly right after Thanksgiving when we return to session. But if uh, if it winds up where this continues, this kind of stalemate continues, wouldn't it be better to get one of the two at least funded if, if that's what you want? In the Senate, there is no stalemate. There's strong, public, frequent statements of support from both Republican and Democratic leaders. So uh, in the Senate where I serve, I think we should take it up, pass it, and send it to the House and see if they aren't, in fact, bluffing. Uh, I'm hopeful they will, in fact, pass it, given that there is a strong bipartisan majority in support of it. So to be clear, both or nothing, as far as you're concerned? Uh, We've actually several times this week voted against moving uh, aid for just one, either Israel or Ukraine. I do think that in the end, we will pass them both. All right. Now, I wanted to ask you about uh, Israel's war with Hamas. Uh, We have a poll, NPR, PBS, uh, NewsHour, Marist poll that shows that a growing number of Americans, including a majority of Democratic voters, believe that Israel's military response has been excessive. Senator, what, if anything, concerns you about Israel's military actions in Gaza? Well, uh, from the very day that President Biden first spoke about the horrific Hamas attack that killed 1,200 civilians, he has stood for Israel's right of self-defense and urged that Israel be targeted in its response, that it not repeat some of the mistakes that we made as Americans in our war in Iraq, for example, in urban warfare. Um, So as we've heard from Secretary Blinken, uh, many of us in Congress are concerned about the number of civilian deaths. Uh, but a large bipartisan group of senators met with the families of hostages, Americans held hostage by Hamas yesterday, and were reminded that Hamas continues to use Palestinians as human shields for their operations, for their um, storage facilities of weapons. Uh, They long have had a practice of hiding their headquarters and their bunkers and their missiles underneath schools and hospitals. So what can be done then to help minimize civilian casualties? We can continue to urge our Israeli allies to better target uh, their campaign against Hamas and, frankly, to keep it as brief as is possible. I understand the, the outrage in Israel against this astonishing and brutal attack by Hamas, uh, but the campaign to make sure that Hamas cannot attack Israel again uh, needs to be as targeted and as effective as possible. 
that poll I mentioned also uh, revealed that uh, younger Americans and people of color, as well as uh, majorities of independents and Republicans, say that the United States should focus more on problems here at home. Senator, how do you convince skeptical Americans that these wars overseas matter to them, too, that they're something that needs to be helped with? The core question here is whether or not the United States is a reliable partner and ally. When our president, when our Congress stands up and says, we will be behind you, Ukraine, when you fight against Russian aggression, um, will we keep our word? Or in a year, year and a half, when we get tired, will we fade and walk away? It does require that we also invest in the United States in making our economy stronger, jobs here better, prices for the average American lower. And President Biden's leadership is making progress on all of those as well. That's United States Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Senator, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Election results out of New Zealand are raising fears about foreign influence from the United States. We're not talking about last month's general election for parliament. No, this is about the race to be crowned New Zealand's bird of the century. Bird of the century is essentially a ramped up version of uh, our annual bird of the year competition. Nicola Take is the chief executive of Forest and Bird. That's the conservation group that organizes the contest. This one was supposed to mark the organization's 100th birthday. Take says the competition took an unexpected turn. Earlier this year, John Oliver's team from last week tonight reached out to my team and said, could John Oliver be a campaign manager for Bird of the Century? And we said, why not? She's referring to the John Oliver who hosts Last Week Tonight on HBO. Given a list of birds to choose from, Oliver chose the Putekiteki, a rare species many New Zealanders had never heard of. That is, until Oliver's campaign raised the bird's profile. Even its name is fun to say. Putekiteki. Putekiteki. It feels like your tongue is tap dancing. Oliver clearly was a fan. And you want elegance? Oh, I'll give you some elegance. They have a mating dance where they both grab a clump of wet grass and chest bump each other before standing around unsure of what to do next. The comedian urged his viewers to vote online for the Pateki Teki. Do it, because after all, this is what democracy is all about. America interfering in foreign elections. Oliver even had billboards and banners put up in cities around the world, from London to Tokyo. The campaign took off. It got so big it even crashed Forest and Bird's website and delayed the announcement of the winner by a couple of days. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Pateki Teki won, racking up nearly 300,000 votes. Finishing in a distant second place was the bird more commonly associated with New Zealand. Call yourself a Kiwi, vote Kiwi. Um, campaign. It's duh, of course it's the Kiwi. That's Erin Riley with Save the Kiwi. She says her campaign is claiming a moral victory despite the Puteki Teki receiving more than 20 times as many votes. If you take Puteki Teki and, you know, foreign American dirty politics out of the equation, we won. But Riley says ultimately there's no hard feelings. She hopes the contest encourages more people to think about conservation. It's pretty good PR for the Puteki Teki too.
This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, China's detention of Japanese nationals on espionage charges may be a source of tension today when leaders of the two countries meet at a summit in San Francisco. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. Closing soon, learn more at PEM.org. And Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. A new documentary charts Tyler Perry's journey from the black theater circuit to the big screen and all the controversy he's faced along the way. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. The Navy's newest submarine, named after Massachusetts, will be commissioned in Boston. The christening for the USS Massachusetts is set to take place in the spring of 2025. That comes after a push from local and state officials to host the commissioning here. Clear skies today. We'll have highs in the low 60s. Tonight, still clear and temperatures fall to lows in the mid 40s. Tomorrow, a partly sunny Friday with highs in the mid 60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. It was a feat of human endurance, almost unbelievable. In 2013, Diana Nyad swam more than 100 miles from Cuba to Florida. She spent more than 53 hours in shark and jellyfish-infested waters, and she was 64 years old at the time. I got three messages. One is... We should never, ever give up. Her lips were swollen from the salt water, but she got a message out to the crowd that welcomed her on shore. You're never too old to chase your dreams. A new film dramatizes that quest with Annette Bening playing the role of Diana Nyad. And three, it looks like a solitary sport. But it takes a team. That's right. <laughs> Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli is the co-director of NIAD, along with her husband, Jimmy Chin. The filmmakers are best known for their documentary work, like the Oscar winner Free Solo, about an especially dangerous rock climbing expedition. Many of our films explore this idea of an individual who believes in the impossible, who dares to dream and has an audacious dream. But 
you know, we never had really a film that centered on a woman. And we were curious what that experience would be like for a woman. So then when we received the script for Nyad, Jimmy and I had this moment being like, this is exactly it. Like, Diana Nyad is someone who's unafraid. I want to do it. Do what? Cuba to Florida. My swim. Huh? (laughs) You're hilarious, sir. No, I'm not kidding, Bonnie. I'm going to do it. No, that's insane. You, you, you tried that when you were 28, and you did not make it when you are 28. You're 60. Yeah, I don't believe in imposed limitations. I don't believe in any limitations. And that's the reason to do it, not the other way around. So for people who aren't as familiar with the story or who are just coming to it, what kept Diana and I going? I mean, one of the things that the film makes clear is that endurance swimming is no joke. I mean, especially endurance swimming in open water. You Miami says it sounds like a box jellyfish. They shouldn't be here. I mean, these things can kill you. Holy hell, let's get them out the water. Jellyfish, the sun, the, trying to figure out how to get nourishment. I mean, what kept her going? Well, I think she believed in her bones that she could do it, and she was willing to fail. She had the courage to fail over and over and over again. So that's, you know, that's the why is something I don't think we can ever really answer. I mean, I really can't imagine anything worse than swimming 110 miles, like in terms of athletic feats. So, you know, why? It's a good question. And what about her coach and best friend, or actually best friend before she was coach, Bonnie Stoll? I mean, she's played by Jodie Foster. You really don't get it, do you? What this is like for us? We're broke. The time, the emotional toll, I mean, it's been years, Diana. Well, suck it up. We're a team, right? Wow. Your superiority complex is really screwed up. You know that? Yeah, well, everyone should have a superiority complex. Everyone should feel like the star of their own life. What kept her going? Bonnie's character is like the beating heart of this film. You know, Bonnie would just say simply, like, if she tried it and failed and Bonnie wasn't there, Bonnie would blame herself. Mm. If she did it and Bonnie wasn't there, Bonnie would also, like, kick herself. So it was just one of those things, like, accepting the terms of a friendship and accepting and admiring someone for who they really are. Like, Bonnie sees Diana for who she is and has decided she loves her, you know, Mm. as a friend. I watched you die, Diana, for 15 seconds. I thought you were dead. Because I said okay to you again. I said, oh, yeah, okay, sure. I, I can't do that again. I can't. Yeah, but I wasn't. I didn't. I'm here. I'm, I'm here. I'm okay. And I'm not quitting. Okay? Yeah, I have to tell you that was one of the things that really struck me is that, um, you know, when you get to be older, it's harder to make friends. I mean, some people listening to our conversation won't know that yet, you know, good for them. But, you know, it gets harder. And there was something really just gorgeous, you know, about the way the relationship was depicted in the film where, you know, especially the Bonnie kind of knew that Diana was a piece of work and she loved her anyway. No, and I I think it's very much, that's very intentional because this is about a chosen family because they both, like both Bonnie and Diana are members of like a generation where gay women probably didn't have kind of the same communities available to them as today, like, or your families didn't, like, support you or whatever it is. It was really important that we honor this idea of chosen family. I mean, you have to know that at this point, there are people who question Diana Nyad's kind of whole story. People know she made the swim. I mean, there are plenty of people around who saw that she made the swim, but there are aspects of her career 
that many people in the endurance swimming community just say she's exaggerated it. And over the years, given lots of interviews where she's kind of puffed up her resume, as it were, and they're not happy about that. And this is not a documentary, but you are documentarians. I know for a fact that documentarians tend to do a lot of research. Did you know that there was this whole thing around the way she's presented herself over the years before you took this project on? I find great joy in the controversy and complexity around Diana. And we worked really hard to build that into the film itself. And if you watch it closely, like, it's all there. You know, like, she's exaggerating the size of the check. Or when Bonnie's like, it's not always the way Diana explains it. And, you know, I think it's just she's a complicated character, and that's okay. But she does say she was the first woman to swim around the Manhattan Island. She wasn't. I mean, she was the seventh. You know, stuff like that. That's just... Not true. I mean, so she that's was the not... fastest human to okay. swim around the island. Okay. Um, and yeah, I totally agree. Like, you know, it's at 28 years old, I think she was very much a hustler. And that's part of the character. I actually, I really take great joy in the fact that Diana is so kind of tricky and complicated and charismatic and unlikable, but likable sometimes. You know? <laughs> yeah. That is Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli. She and her husband, Jimmy Chin, are the co-directors of the film, Nyette. You can look for it on Netflix. Chai Vassarelli, thanks so much for talking to us. No, thank you. This was so much fun. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, we'll learn about Kernza, a new environmentally sustainable grain that's caught the attention of the USDA as well as whiskey distillers in Colorado. It's 729. Radio Lab comes to City Space on Friday, December 8th for an immersive multimedia event exploring the history of cassette tapes and how they changed the world. Get tickets at WBWAR.com. WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers, and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. and China have agreed to resume military-to-military contacts following talks between President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping. The two met in Northern California yesterday for several hours. Military contacts were suspended more than a year ago after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi traveled to Taiwan. NPR's Tamara Keith says Biden also announced an agreement on fentanyl. Biden said that she agreed to take steps to significantly reduce the flow of precursor ingredients that are used to make fentanyl, many of which come from China. Biden was quite passionate about this, saying that he knew families who had lost loved ones to the the deadly street drug. The talks in California were the first face-to-face discussions between Biden and Xi in a year. Congress has given final approval to a stopgap spending bill to prevent a partial government shutdown at the end of the week. 
Some Republicans in the Senate are urging fellow GOP Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama to end his ongoing protest over a Pentagon abortion policy. It's been holding up the nominations of hundreds of senior officers in the U.S. military. South Carolina's Lindsey Graham says he's tired of the tactic. If it takes me to vote to break loose these folks, I will. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Beacon Hill lawmakers say they'll keep working to pass a supplemental spending measure for the state's emergency shelter system. The formal session ended yesterday without an agreement between the House and Senate. Both branches approved plans that include more than $250 million in funding for the shelter system. Negotiations will now take place during informal sessions. A group of Boston City Councilors is advocating for immigrants with legal status to gain voting privileges in city elections. WBUR Simone Rios reports the council is expected to further explore the issue. It's not the first time the council has considered allowing immigrants to vote in Boston. Advocates say more and more cities are making the change, and it's time to enfranchise many of Boston's 68,000 immigrants who have legal status. Councilor Liz Braden says it's frustrating to be politically active, yet unable to vote. We shouldn't be making it more difficult for people to participate. We should be smoothing the way and making it easier for people to participate and be fully engaged in our civic life. Outgoing Councillor Michael Flaherty warned this could cause confusion. It's illegal for immigrants to vote in federal elections. The voting proposal now goes to the Council's Committee on Government Operations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The Veterans Administration is holding a lung cancer screening today at its campuses in Brockton, Jamaica Plain, and West Roxbury. VA Healthcare System spokesman Winfield Danielson says veterans, especially those over 50, are at higher risk for lung cancer than the general population. One of the things that we do as part of the screening is a low-dose CT scan, which is a special kind of x-ray that takes multiple pictures to take a look at the lungs and see if there's any evidence that, you know, you might be at risk of lung cancer. And obviously the important thing is to try to catch it early because it is treatable. The lung screening is available to every veteran who's enrolled with the VA. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. The Celtics beat the Sixers 117-107 to last night in Philadelphia. The Seas will visit the Toronto Raptors tomorrow. Highs in the low 60s today under sunny skies. Mid-40s tonight and skies stay clear. Highs in the mid-60s for our Friday tomorrow. We'll have a mix of sun and clouds. It's 44 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm May Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The last time the leaders of Japan and China met in Beijing, Japan's leader asked China to free several Japanese nationals detained there on espionage charges. The two countries' leaders are expected to meet today while attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. Now, when they do, the topic of detainees is likely to come up again. From Tokyo, NPR's Anthony Kuhn spoke to one Japanese citizen who spent six years in a Chinese prison on espionage charges that he denies. Hideji Suzuki describes himself as a pro-China guy. He's traveled to China more than 200 times, taught at Chinese universities, and promoted friendly Japan-China ties. His last visit was in 2016. He finished arranging a symposium and headed to the airport. Several men were waiting for me, standing and chatting. They asked me, is your name Suzuki? And I said, yes. They surrounded me and pushed me into a car. Suzuki was accused of spying. For seven nightmarish months, he says he was detained in what appeared to be a secret prison. When he wasn't being interrogated, he sat on his bed, watched around the clock by two guards in his room. I asked to see the sun, and so they put me in front of the window for 15 minutes. Only 15 minutes of sun in seven months. He says he was later moved to another facility where conditions were better. Suzuki is among 17 Japanese nationals detained on spying charges since China enacted a new anti-espionage law in 2015. Five are still in detention. Asked about one case in September, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said that foreigners in China who break the law will be held accountable. There have been similar cases involving Japanese citizens in recent years, and the Japanese side needs to do more to educate and warn their citizens not to engage in such activities. But some argue that Hideji Suzuki was just not that type. He is not a professional spy, period. Kunihiko Miyake is a former Japanese diplomat who met Suzuki while stationed in Beijing. He's a very naive, in a good sense, Japan-China friendship guy who's been working for the bilateral relationship for, for decades. Throughout that time, Miyake says, Japan has hoped for friendly ties with its neighbor. But it didn't work. So it's time for us to wake up and see the reality. And I think we should be more careful in dealing with the Chinese affairs in the future. I think Mr. Suzuki taught us the lesson. The espionage charges stemmed from a lunch Suzuki had with a Chinese diplomat. The two discussed Jiang Song-tek, the uncle of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Jiang was purged and executed in 2013. The whole conversation was only about facts that had already been reported in Japan. I asked him, what's this all about? And he said, I don't know. That was it. Suzuki admits that he also met with Japanese intelligence officers. He denies that he was employed by them as a spy, but Suzuki was convicted and sentenced to six years in jail. I asked Suzuki if he felt betrayed by China. Yes, I do. And I feel it's very regrettable. I wonder, what is going on with China? Suzuki criticizes Japanese diplomats for not doing more to free him. Asked about the case, Japan's foreign ministry declined to respond to Suzuki's criticism, but said in an email that they have and will continue to work for the early repatriation of detained Japanese citizens. Suzuki adds that then-Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe 
raised the issue of detained Japanese, including Suzuki, with China's leader Xi Jinping at a 2019 summit in Beijing. He says Xi responded positively, but Suzuki still served his full six-year jail term. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Tokyo. In an effort to stay competitive in some sports, historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, are diversifying their rosters. Some say that means moving away from the reason these schools were founded, to give African-American students an option for higher education. Julian Virgin with member station WABE in Atlanta has this report on the effect of international recruiting on HBCU tennis teams. The thud of rackets striking fluorescent yellow-green balls echoed throughout a tennis center near Atlanta during the HBCU National Championship in September. 17 historically black colleges and university tennis teams are competing in men's and women's singles and doubles, vying to become a national champion. But many of the players here are not African-American. I always wanted to play in the U.S. because I wanted like a scholarship and being a university here. Alejandra Hidalgo Vega is a sophomore at North Carolina Central University. Born and raised in Madrid, Spain, she began playing tennis at the age of six. Now she's on a full scholarship. I really enjoy being at HBCU. I have a lot of fun. Vega says she paid a Madrid-based recruiting service to help her land a full scholarship to an American university. Scouting athletes through third-party international sports recruiters has become a big practice in the U.S., including HBCUs. That's according to Dr. Ashley Brown Greer, who studies internationalization at historically black colleges. For HBCUs, that works two ways because now we're able to retain top student athletic talent and we're also able to diversify our student bodies. 20 years ago, just under 6,000 international student athletes were competing at U.S. institutions. 20 years later, that number has more than tripled, including at HBCUs. This recruitment trend does not sit well with coaches who believe in the original mission of HBCUs to educate black Americans. We feel that there's a lot of black students that need the opportunity to go to college and play tennis. That's Gregory Green, head tennis coach at Tuskegee University. His recruiting philosophy is simple. Give black students a chance. Those are the ones we recruit. We want to keep it home. This is HBCU and we're going to stick to that all the way through. Studies show tennis in the U.S. is diversifying. Nearly 10% of tennis players in this country are African-American, and for the first time ever, four black American players reached the quarterfinals of this year's U.S. Open. But there needs to be more talent growth, says coach Anouk Christans, who leads the tennis program at Alabama State University. Tennis is an international sport. I would love to see more uh... African-Americans playing tennis and get to a level where they can play college tennis at the highest level. All seven players on ASU's roster are international students, most from European countries. But Christian says he is starting to see talented African-American players. But they need to go to the next three, four levels so that they can be in par with everyone else. Christian's international recruiting has won the school six national championships. As the landscape for collegiate athletics continues to evolve, including players getting paid for their name, image, and likeness, athletic departments at HBCUs will have to find a way to balance winning at their sports with the reason why the universities were created in the first place. For NPR News, I'm Julian Virgin in Atlanta. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll look at what was accomplished yesterday when President Biden met for hours with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It was their first face-to-face meeting in more than a year. Sunny and low 60s today, clear skies in mid-40s tonight, partly sunny in mid-60s tomorrow. It's 45 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Strikes are underway this morning at a number of Starbucks nationwide, including some Massachusetts locations. Workers at locations in Alston, Brighton, Newton Corner, and Worcester are taking part in the one-day strike. Kate Goodrich works at a unionized Starbucks in Alston and is pregnant. They say their store is chronically understaffed, forcing them to finish a shift despite having a migraine. My doctor told me, she was like, you know, you can't ever do that again because you could miscarry because of the stress and that could have been something really serious. But I feel like I have to choose between either having a baby or keeping my job. And it was because we were understaffed. Union leaders at Starbucks Workers United say the company has illegally refused to negotiate in good faith over staffing and scheduling issues. A Starbucks spokesperson says Workers United hasn't come to the bargaining table in several months. The Boston-based Fenway Sports Group is leading a consortium of sports owners looking to become a partner in the PGA Golf Tour. The Fenway Sports Group is the parent company of the Red Sox. The effort comes as the PGA is in the midst of transforming itself from a nonprofit to a for-profit organization. Sources close to the situation tell the Boston Globe the owners of the Celtics, New York Mets, and San Francisco Giants are all part of the consortium. It's 7.44. At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Now an update on efforts to make food more climate friendly. KUNC's Ray Solomon reports on why it's been hard to get that food onto store shelves. Todd Olander grows familiar grains on his 2,000-acre farm in Loveland, Colorado, mostly barley, wheat, and rye. But this one little field with the short tufts of broad green blades is different. All of this low-growth plants that are spreading out, that's all Kernza. It's all Kernza, an alternative grain being developed with sustainability in mind. And Olander is one of the first farmers to experiment with it in Colorado. It's 11 acres out of 2,000. I mean, it's, it's worth a, a trial. Kernza is a cousin of wheat, but University of Minnesota agronomist Jake Younger says it's better for the environment. 
it's a perennial grain. It's a completely different paradigm of a perennial grain crop versus an annual. That means farmers like Olander don't need to replant Kernza every year. And that improves soil health, prevents erosion, and helps on the biodiversity front. Breeders have spent decades improving Kernza, making it more appealing for growers. The goal is more yield, more seeds per acre. And those ongoing efforts have been successful. Since 2019, Kernza fields quadrupled to about 4,000 acres and expanded from the upper Midwest into new regions like Colorado, Washington State, and Montana. But Youngers wants to see Kernza and other perennial crops grown on a scale that would revolutionize agriculture. Only problem? Building market demand for those revolutionary crops. A lot of good could be done if Kernza could be integrated into a lot of different products in a way that required much more acreage, hundreds of thousands to a million acres. Tessa Peters is with the Land Institute, a nonprofit research group that breeds Kernza. She says demand for Kernza was just starting to take off in 2019. The market was pretty strong. We had a lot of commercial partners who were looking for Kernza. That included General Mills, which released a limited edition Kernza breakfast cereal in 2019. But then a global pandemic crashed right into the Kernza supply chain. When COVID happened, there were cancellations of pretty large contracts as restaurants and bakeries and other businesses went out of business. Market disruptions from the war in Ukraine didn't help. It all put a huge dent in the burgeoning Kernza trade. The Land Institute says a big surplus, up to a million pounds of Kernza grain, is now just sitting in storage. Dawn Thilmany is an agricultural economist at Colorado State University. She says building a new market for grains can be tricky. They're never something we tend to consume directly. They don't usually attract devoted followings because they end up just one ingredient among many in a product. But under the right conditions, even an oddball grain like Kernza can become a rock star. For Kernza, it's just going to be some cool food entrepreneur figuring out how to integrate it into the product that people really, really like. Chris Anderson Tarver might be the cool food entrepreneur Kernza needs. Right now, he's got a pilot batch of Kernza whiskey aging in the cellar of his distillery in Denver, Colorado. And the Kernza whiskey has this great aroma. There's a little bit of a fruit note. There's some, some, a little bit of nuttiness. Nipping a taste from the barrel, he says Kernza adds a striking flavor. It's a little spicy, like Fig Newton with a touch of cinnamon. Oh, yeah. This is going to be so good. Anderson Tarver says this first batch has to keep aging at least another year. But he's already convinced Kernza Whiskey will be a hit. For NPR News, I'm Ray Solomon in Denver. This is NPR News. Coming up at 820 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, a group of nonprofits is suing the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for failing to take steps to protect one of the most endangered species of whales in the world. It's 749. WBUR supporters include The Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th, lyricstage.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. 
I'm Robin Young. Our series on America's gun culture looks back at the agency charged with regulating guns, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, and the pushback against it. So abolish the ATF. That's what this is about. It has become anti-gun and anti-Second Amendment. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. People in southern Gaza say Israeli forces have dropped leaflets warning people in four towns to evacuate their homes. President Biden and Chinese President Xi say they will work together to curb fentanyl production and address safety concerns related to artificial intelligence. And thousands of Starbucks workers across the country will take part in a one-day strike today, including shops in Alston, Brighton, Newton, and Worcester. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker, Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Sunny today. It'll be in the low 60s. Clear skies tonight and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow in the mid-60s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Hamas attack on southern Israel and the weeks of Israeli bombardment that followed have provoked some intense responses. And some of the most attention-getting reactions have occurred on a few college campuses. But students and educators elsewhere are also sorting their way through the emotional, moral, and ethical questions provoked by the crisis. I spoke with Eddie Glaude Jr. about this. He is a scholar, theologian, and professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. One of the big questions I've been asking is, how do we respond to evil? Right? How do we make sense of an evil act like October 7th? And how do we understand it, even as we are horrified by what happened? What are the moral constraints that follow from this? Right? How are we to contextualize this within the broader history of of the relationship between Palestinians and Israel? How do we understand the nature of resistance, the discourse of decolonization? So we've been grappling with all sorts of things, um, but it's hard. Obviously, it's hard. There are, what, 4,000 college and university (laughs) campuses in the United States? At least, At least. But some things that have happened on a couple of campuses have gotten a lot of attention. Some people are very angry about some of the statements that some of these students have made. And and it has to be said, a lot of these are students of color. And it just, some people feel like, well, that's just kind of, that's what, you know, kids do. Kids, kids do too much. And they need to learn to be more careful in their thinking and in their words. But other people see something else in it. I'm just wondering, what do you see? You know, I, I see a very complicated moment. Before the Israeli-Hamas war, there is this general characterization of universities and colleges as these hotbed spaces of illiberalism, that political correctness had run amok, that, you know, wokeism has overrun universities and colleges. And I think that's just wrong. I just think the moral panic that has been induced over some horrific moments, the overreach of protest, it is a manufactured panic Mm. because People are having difficult conversations every single day 
on college and university campuses. There are so many strong feelings, and rightly so, about what is occurring right now. I mean, a massacre that we all saw unfold almost in real time, and then subsequently a military response that has caused you know tremendous suffering among people who have no voice in the matter, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I hear it. I mean, you know, you reach out to your Jewish friends and, and you know that they are horrified, some of whom lost people that they love. And what does it mean to sit with that if you really understand what friendship is, right? But it also, you know, the question of moral clarity can be a red herring. Because it seems to me in moments like these, if you refuse to invoke context, then the passions, revenge can overwhelm, can overrun everything. Sometimes we have to invoke historical context as a way to ensure a measured response. If evil has happened to you, and that's all we can describe, the killing of innocence, right? Evil is never justified. But if evil happens to you, does the experience of evil then allow you to act with impunity outside of international law without moral constraint? My answer to that is no, period. Because to me, a Palestinian baby is just as valuable just as innocent, just as cherished, as people cherished him and loved them as an Israeli baby. And if you lose sight of that, that's the beginning of the corruption of the soul. You can become the monsters that you despise if you lose sight of that. Do you feel any particular responsibility in this moment as a scholar, as a scholar of color, and also as a public intellectual? You know, I have been very hard on myself, Michelle, because you have to engage in all of this calculation mm. because I feel an obligation to speak, to be morally consistent as best I can, to call attention to, I mean, the images of the dead are just horrific, I, you know. And then I find myself wondering, should I say this? Why, why wouldn't you say that? Well, think about what's happening to some of these young students who are protesting. They're having jobs rescinded. They're being doxxed. You know, certain Jewish students are feeling unsafe. You have the information of students who are engaging in protest against the state of Israel and its execution of the war in Gaza. They're living under threat. And, you know, even as a professor with tenure, you are kind of reflecting on, on the consequences of, of just stating your moral position. Hmm. A lot of people feel afraid right now. A lot of people feel unvalued. People feel silenced. There's, a, there's just a lot of strong feelings in this country right now. And I'm just wondering, what do you think your responsibility is? I think my responsibility in this moment is to keep track of the humanity of people so that people don't lose it in the face of their efforts to respond to the horror of October 7th, and to keep track of the humanity of those who bear the brunt, right, of the response. Hmm. 
So what does it mean to bear witness to the conditions under which human beings can become monstrous? Hmm. And I have to do that without hesitation and without fear. Hmm. And I keep reminding myself of that. Professor Eddie Glad, thanks so much for talking with us about this, obviously a very complicated and fraught subject. So thank you so much for trying to help us make sense of it. No, it's my pleasure. For more coverage of the war between Israel and Hamas and differing viewpoints and analysis, you can visit npr.org slash updates. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. Low 60s today and sunny, mid-40s tonight, and some clouds move in overnight for a partly cloudy day tomorrow in the mid-60s. It's 45 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some residents of southern Gaza say Israel has dropped leaflets warning them to evacuate, signaling a possible expansion in the Israeli offensive against Hamas. It's Thursday, November 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping have agreed to work together on curbing fentanyl production and on AI safety issues. These are tangible steps in the right direction to determine what's useful and what's not useful what's dangerous and what's acceptable. Also, why federal firefighters say an effort in Congress to boost their pay may be too little too late. And this hour, WBWAR's Barbara Moran dives into a new federal report that details the increasing impacts of climate change in New England. Now we're seeing, on average, a billion-dollar disaster every three weeks. Yeah, that's a lot. It's unbelievable. Yeah, we've already had two in the Northeast this year so far. Sunny in the 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Gaza's health ministry says Israeli soldiers are searching the underground levels of the Strip's biggest hospital today. It says they've detained some of the technicians who work there. Meanwhile, Israel's military has been releasing videos of what it says is evidence that Hamas has been housing its fighters in the hospital. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. In video footage overlaid with music, Israeli Army spokesperson Jonathan Konrikis points to what he says was found inside Gaza's El Shifa hospital. Live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest. Guns, grenades, and uniforms hidden behind an MRI machine. NPR couldn't independently verify this. Human rights advocates say this doesn't amount to the command center Israel alleges Hamas had under the hospital. And they say that even if Hamas did have fighters there, it doesn't mean Israel can endanger civilians. Al-Shifa Hospital ran out of fuel last weekend, but hundreds of patients, doctors, and evacuees remain inside. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. President Biden met Chinese President Xi Jinping yesterday on the sidelines of a major Asian Pacific economic summit. It was outside San Francisco. 
Biden says the leaders have agreed to resume communication between their militaries. Speaking through an interpreter to a group of business leaders, she said China and the U.S. need to cooperate. We, the largest developing country, that is China, and the largest developed country, the United States, we must get along with each other. They also agreed to cooperate on combating the misuse of the opioid fentanyl. She told the business leaders that China is again considering loaning pandas to an American zoo. President Biden meets with other Asian Pacific leaders today as the economic summit continues in San Francisco. The private company SpaceX is set to launch its huge spacecraft called Starship from its South Texas site. That's the same place where its last Starship exploded minutes after launch. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila prepared this report. SpaceX plans to launch Starship this Friday from the same location as April's launch attempt, which destroyed part of the site's launch pad and scattered debris into surrounding wildlife areas. The company's CEO, Elon Musk, said Monday that he expected regulatory approval of Starship's launch in time for the weekend. Early Wednesday afternoon, SpaceX's launch infrastructure also got approval from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. SpaceX had added a water deluge system intended to prevent Starship's launch pad from disintegrating as it did during the rocket's launch in April. Fish and Wildlife says the new water deluge system will have virtually no effect on the wetlands surrounding Starship's launch pad. SpaceX has not confirmed a launch time. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. On Wall Street stock, futures are trading lower. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Advocates for homeless families say they're struggling to find places for people to sleep. The state is putting families on a wait list for shelter because the state-funded system is full. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports that affected a large group last night. One of the state's family welcome centers sent waitlisted families to sleep at Logan Airport, including a two-month-old baby. But when the families arrived, they were told they'd be sent to South Station. Around 10 p.m., Gerald Gabot, who runs the nonprofit Immigrant Family Services Institute, booked nine motel rooms. It feels that we are moving backward. The biggest challenge that we have is the lack of clarity in terms of you know how things are supposed to be. The state has not set up an overflow site where waitlisted families can stay. A spokesperson for Logan said the airport is not an appropriate place to house people. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. More than 100 professors at Harvard are calling on the university's president to better support free speech on campus. President Claudine Gay sent out a letter last week that condemned language used by supporters of Palestinians. The professors say they're worried that the university's stance is being influenced by donors who are threatening to withhold money. They're asking the president to reaffirm the school's commitment to freedom of speech. New Hampshire will hold its presidential primary on January 23rd next year. That's despite a push by President Biden to have South Carolina host the first-in-the-nation primary. Biden and the Democratic National Committee say the state's racial diversity better reflects the country. New Hampshire Secretary of State David Scanlon says national Democrats are forcing racial diversity as an issue. At what point does a state become too old? We're too wealthy, we're too educated, we're too religious to hold an early primary. The truth is, there is no individual state that truly reflects the makeup of America. 
New Hampshire law requires it hold its primary a week before any similar election. President Biden will not be on the ballot because the state rejected the primary calendar backed by the DNC. Officials will break ground today on a new high school in Watertown. Watertown High School is set to be the most environmentally friendly high school in the country. The school will have LEED Platinum status. That means the building will have fewer greenhouse gas emissions and be focused on sustainability. It will also produce enough renewable energy for its own use. Officials expect the building to cost $219 million. It's set to open in 2026. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. The Celtics beat the Sixers 117-107 to last night in Philadelphia. Jason Tatum led Boston with 29 points. The Celtics will visit the Toronto Raptors tomorrow. Sunny today with a high in the lower 60s. Clear overnight, it'll get into the 40s. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-60s. Rain on Saturday and in the 50s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One. With the Capital One Quicksilver card, what's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. President Biden met for four hours yesterday with China's leader Xi Jinping. Yeah, the goal was to stabilize a complicated relationship that has been especially tense over the past year. And afterwards, President Biden held a wide-ranging news conference. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith was there, and she is with us now from San Francisco to tell us about it. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. So, so first of all, were there any significant agreements that came out of these talks? Well, the main development was on the synthetic opioid fentanyl, and Biden said that she agreed to take steps to significantly reduce the flow of precursor ingredients that are used to make fentanyl, many of which come from China. And Biden was quite passionate about this, saying that he knew families who had lost loved ones to the deadly street drug fentanyl. A senior official who briefed us after the meeting said, They really have to see whether China follows through on this and whether these efforts will succeed at getting the precursor ingredients, whether that will disrupt the fentanyl trade as they hope it does. Another development was on restarting military to military communications. This has been closed off for some time now between the two countries, um, and there will be steps to resume that line of communication. And the importance of this is that there have been some close calls between U.S. and, and Chinese military vessels, and they're hoping to avoid that in the future or avoid that tipping into conflict. Biden said that he and she also agreed to have more communication between each other when there are problems. Well, speaking about, you know, the two of them together, you had a chance to see the two of them together because you were in the room at the start, what, you know, what reporters we call a spray. You saw them together. How did, how did they seem? 
Well, they've known each other for a long time, but they also haven't talked for a year. They sat across from each other. And Biden's team, according to a senior official, made a real effort to rekindle the familiarity between them. For instance, Biden and Xi's wife share a birthday. It's next week. Biden reminded Xi about the shared birthday. Biden later told us that he brought a photo of Xi from when the leader last visited San Francisco as a young man and showed it to him. But in terms of the business of the meeting, Biden said that it was very direct, even blunt conversation. And as I said, they did agree that in the future, they will pick up the phone and call each other, which is something that has not happened in a year. And and I want to mention that the press conference did not just focus on China. The president has taken a very strong pro-Israel position. I was wondering if he talked about that last night. What did he say? Yeah, he continued that strong position. He did talk a lot about the Israeli military operation at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. And he made it clear that he believes that Hamas is using the hospital as a base for weapons and fighters. But, you know, he was asked how long he thought this wrenching conflict would last. So it's, uh, but I can't tell, I'm not a fortune teller, I can't tell you how long it's going to last. But I can tell you, I don't think it ultimately ends until there's a two-state solution. I made it clear to the Israelis, I think it's a big mistake for them to think they're going to occupy Gaza and maintain Gaza. I don't think that works. All along, Biden is at a strategy of publicly standing with Israel and privately delivering tough advice. We got a little hint of that private advice. Any update on the hostages? He said he's mildly hopeful. That is NPR's Tamara Keith. Tam, thank you. You're welcome. Tennessee Republican lawmaker Tim Burchett says Kevin McCarthy elbowed him in the kidneys in retaliation for voting to oust him as Speaker of the House. What kind of chicken move is that? You're, you're pathetic, man. The altercation came on the same day this past Tuesday that a Senate hearing nearly turned into a brawl when Senator Mark Wayne Mullen challenged the president of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien, to a fight. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold. Stop it. Is that your solution? Every poll. No, no. Sit down, please. That's Senator Bernie Sanders trying to de-escalate the situation. And at a House Oversight Committee the same day, Republican Chairman James Comer of Kentucky clashed with Representative Jared Moskowitz of Florida at a hearing belittling his blue suit. You look like a Smurf here, just going around and all this stuff. Now, listen. Mr. Chairman, you no, have... No, you, you no, no, hold, hold on. If we're, you can, if we're passion not, spilling into violence are nothing new on Capitol Hill. Yale historian Joanne Freeman has documented more than 70 cases of fisticuffs, stabbings, and duels between hot-tempered lawmakers. She wrote about them in her book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and the Road to Civil War. Joanne, so your book covers a 30-year period that ended in 1960, leading up to the Civil War. Do you see any similarities to to today and and what lessons, if any, can be drawn from all that? Well, certainly um, there are a lot of similarities, which is not to say that we're on the brink of civil war, but the idea that not only are we polarized, but that one side, certainly in Congress, that the right at this particular moment seems to have embraced a rhetoric of violence, appears to be willing to do whatever they need to do to get what they want at this moment, are not really abiding by some of the rules and norms of Congress. And certainly what you saw in Congress in the 1850s was Southerners who were operating under the same principle. They were going to do whatever it required to get what they wanted, and they certainly were not willing to talk it seems comical in some ways, but, you know, it also represents 
kind of a scorning of some of the pretty basic components of how a democratic legislature should work. Now, the period leading up to the Civil War was a very polarizing time in America that included the infamous Brooks-Sumner Affair. Can you remind us what happened with the Brooks-Sumner Affair? Sure. Charles Sumner was an abolitionist senator from Massachusetts, and he gave a very assertive anti-slavery speech in the Senate. And Preston Brooks of South Carolina was offended by it as a slaveholder uh, and violently caned Charles Sumner to the ground. And it certainly, as you suggested at the outset, wasn't the first instance of violence in Congress, but it was a particularly dramatic one coming as it did in 1856. By that point, it was getting very close to the really eruption of the fact that there was absolutely no way for anyone to even talk about slavery in Congress. When, when these fights happen, these congressional fights, who started them? Who, who's tended to start these uh, congressional fights more frequently? More often than not, it was actually Southerners. Um, and not surprisingly, a lot of them had something to do with slavery. The South, Southerners in Congress tended to Anyone who threatened the institution of slavery, they would use threats of violence, uh, they have threats of dual challenges. In one way or another, they would try to intimidate Northerners into silence or compliance on the issue of slavery. Uh, and for a time, it worked quite well. There were people who wouldn't stand up and confront a Southerner, knowing that this is what was waiting for them on the other end. You can see in the record and you can see in people's diaries and private letters, people explicitly saying that they would rather not talk than have to stand up and face that kind of threat. Joanne, why do you think we don't learn from history and our own history, our own country's history for that matter? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Well, I, I mean, I think in part, there's a belief among a lot of people that, you know, the United States will always be okay, that we're exceptional in some way, that whatever is happening now is not serious, everything will be fine, and perhaps it will be, and I certainly hope so. Um, but I think that generally speaking, speaking as a historian, that's not a smart way to proceed. I think you have to keep your eyes open, and I think knowing history and being aware of history and being willing to say, okay, this happened in the past, history doesn't repeat, but as you just suggested, we can learn from it. We have to learn from it, and we need to get past the idea that somehow what's happening in the present doesn't count because bad things don't happen to the United States. Sometimes they do, and to avoid them, we need to be aware of how we got to where we are, how things have worked in the past, and what we can do in the present to avoid bad things in the future. That's Yale historian Joanne Freeman. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Some of the biggest names in literature gathered in New York City last night for the National Book Awards. Author Justin Torres won the Fiction Prize for his novel Blackout. But he ceded his time on the stage that he was given to accept the award to invite other authors to join him to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. And this year's National Book Award for Fiction goes to Blackouts by Justin Torres. Blackouts is an almost experimental novel that's in honor of the lives and achievements of queer people that have been erased from history. But Torres kept his personal thank yous quick. Because the writers, we've collectively decided to make a statement. As and a little so more than a I dozen of his fellow finalists came up on stage and stood behind Aliyah Bilal, author of the nominated short story collection Temple Folk, as she made this statement. On behalf of the finalists, we oppose 
the ongoing bombardment of Gaza and call for a humanitarian ceasefire to address the urgent humanitarian needs of Palestinian civilians, particularly children. It was the most direct and pointed mention of Israel's war against Hamas the entire evening, which was otherwise business as usual. Actor and Reading Rainbow host and executive producer LeVar Burton hosted the proceedings, opening with a pointed joke at the activist group behind the growing calls to remove certain books from public schools. Before we get going, are there any moms for liberty in the house? Moms for liberty? No? Good. Then hands will not need to be thrown tonight. And there was a special appearance from Oprah Winfrey, who also focused on the rise of so-called book bans. To ban books is to strangle off what sustains us and makes us better people. Connection and compassion, empathy, understanding. Other winners include graphic novelist Dan Santance of First Time for Everything for Young People's Literature, Craig Santos Perez's from Unincorporated Territory Amont in Poetry, and The Words That Remain by Brazilian writer Xenio Cardell, translated by Bruna Dantas Lobato for Translated Literature. And in nonfiction, Ned Blackhawk won for his book The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History which argues that any telling of American history is incomplete without the stories of Native Americans. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. WBUR climate and environment correspondent Barbara Moran breaks down a new federal report that concludes that climate change fueled disasters in New England are happening more often and growing more expensive. It's 819. WBUR supporters include Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical that explores life's unexpected curves. Starts December 6th, amrep.org. And The Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, providerig.com. I'm Robin Young. Our series on America's gun culture looks back at the agency charged with regulating guns, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, and the pushback against it. So abolish the ATF. That's what this is about. It has become anti-gun and anti-Second Amendment. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Boston police say the BU Bridge is closed at Commonwealth Avenue right now because of a protest. They're advising commuters to seek an alternate route. Clear skies today will have highs in the low 60s. Tonight, still clear and temperatures fall to lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, a partly sunny Friday with highs in the mid-60s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change 
using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. One of the most endangered whales on the planet has come to the brink of extinction under U.S. watch. By the government's estimates, only around 51 rice whales are left in the world. They all live in the Gulf of Mexico. NPR's investigations desk examined public records and found that companies working in the Gulf and the federal agency in charge have repeatedly delayed adopting measures that could help the species. Here's NPR's Kiara Eisner. Tucked away in a Maryland community, minutes from the border with Washington, D.C., is the largest collection of marine mammal bones in the world. Come on in, please. Around 10,000 specimens are stored in the Smithsonian's two climate-controlled warehouses. All of these are different species of whales. We have a bunch of gray whales down here and humpback whales on the other side. We have things going all the way back to the 1820s, 1830s. That's Michael McGowan. He's a scientist and a curator at the Smithsonian. We walked past racks of ribs, the dried skin of a river dolphin, and a drawer full of narwhal tusks. But the animal I'm there for can't fit in a drawer. So this is it right here. Yeah, it's still oily to the touch. On either side of the skulls are two sides of its lower jaw. We're looking at the rusty brown skull of a rice's whale. It's about twice as tall as I am. Those two bones are called the nasals. And how the nasals fit into each other is very distinctive in different whale species. This is the skull that scientists use to determine that Rice's whales were a brand new species in 2021, after the whale it belonged to washed up in the Everglades. But by the time that discovery was made, there were fewer than 100 left. One in five had died after the Deepwater Horizon spill poured millions of gallons of oil into their habitat. I knew it was a long shot, but I went to the Gulf to see if I could see any of them alive. All right, here we go, everybody. Amateur fisherman Ben Renfro took me out on his boat in October to the same spot off the coast of Pensacola where he had seen a rice's whale a few months before. So here's where we are. I dropped a microphone into the ocean to see if I could hear them. There's nothing around. There's no other boats. So let's see what we pick up. We couldn't hear much. The whales weren't nearby. But researchers have recorded their calls, and they sound like nothing else on the planet. The whales can moan like that for a minute without stopping. But the whales are not alone. That's the sound of an air gun. Energy companies send explosions of compressed air into the ocean to help them find oil and gas. The guns go off every 10 seconds for weeks at a time. Because sound travels faster in the ocean than in air, that booming can be heard halfway across the Gulf. And then there's the propeller noise from ships. All that noise can make it difficult for the whales to hear each other. For whales underwater, it's really sound that is critical. That's Anna Shirovich, a scientist who studies whale calls in the Gulf. She says being able to communicate is essential for finding prey and mates. But in some cases, when boats were nearby, Rice's whales went completely silent. The stakes are high. To avoid extinction, 
the species can only afford to lose one whale every 15 years to human activity. Once you're dealing with such a small population, anything that hinders its ability to reproduce and do well should be a concern. Quieter air gun technologies are on the market, but there are no limits to underwater noise like there are above water. And oil companies aren't using the new tech much. I looked through the plans for seismic surveys in the Gulf over the next three years. Right now, none of the companies plan to use the new air guns, though two will use fewer of the old ones. Alex Lorero is a scientific director for an oil and gas industry trade group called Energio. She says energy companies aren't ready for the alternatives. It's going to take time for the industry to actually be able to use these technologies effectively. There are laws to protect wildlife from risks besides noise. But the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, was years late on meeting mandatory deadlines related to listing the whales as endangered. And they still haven't designated which part of the whale's habitat should be protected. And that is really shameful, given the species that are being managed are on the verge of extinction. I mean, they are ecologically at death's door. Michael Jasney is a senior policy analyst for Natural Resources Defense Council. NRDC and other groups have tried for years to get NOAA to enforce a speed limit of 10 knots in a portion of the whale's critical habitat. That's to avoid the boats hitting whales. At least two Rice's whales have been struck by ships since 2009. One was injured, the other was killed. And a speed limit has been in place along the East Coast for more than a decade to protect North Atlantic right whales. And it's been shown to work. There is no reason why that cannot be done in the Gulf of Mexico. Last month, NOAA denied the nonprofit's petition. NOAA said it wants to meet other deadlines first and would try to get vessels to slow down voluntarily. But NPR analyzed shipping data from 2022. We found that more than three-quarters of the journeys made by large vessels through the whale's habitat had an average speed above 10 knots. With no rule in place, the whales were still at a high risk. There's a lot that NOAA is doing, and there's also a lot more that needs to be done. That was Laura Engelby. She's the chief of NOAA's Marine Mammal Branch in the Southeast. She acknowledged that NOAA was limited in its staff and resources, but said they're trying to raise awareness in other ways, like putting part of the whale we saw in the warehouse on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. It's a symposium to really bring together how important these sort of unknown whales are. I mean, it's a really big deal to think that that whale that's stranded in the Everglades is gonna be the feature of this Ocean Hall exhibit. Back in the bone collection, Michael McGowan explains which parts of the whale will be at the museum. We'll have its baleen on display. There's a piece of plastic actually that was found in its gut that will be on display in some sort of life-size representation. That's open to the public now. But if measures to protect Rice's whales aren't enacted soon, conservationists believe the only place to see the whales will be inside a museum. Kiara Eisner, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, surveys show that 30 percent of the federal firefighting force may quit if they don't see a permanent wage increase that Congress has been slow to approve. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says the U.S. and China have agreed to restart military-to-military talks. Beijing formally suspended the contacts more than a year ago after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi traveled to Taiwan. Biden announced the change yesterday after meeting with China's President Xi Jinping in Northern California. Biden says Washington and Beijing also plan to work together to stop the flow of ingredients from China used to make fentanyl. The talks between Biden and Xi marked their first face-to-face discussions in a year. Protesters calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war showed up last night outside the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in Washington. Police say demonstrators became violent, leading to a lockdown of House office buildings and the evacuation of some members of Congress. Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman of California was among the lawmakers forced to move. Neither side, neither the right nor the left, should uh, engage in criminal behavior, attack police, or even disrupt other people's meetings. Several officers were injured. At least one person was arrested. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says last month was the hottest October ever recorded. NOAA says the heat helped to fuel a number of powerful powerful hurricanes and cyclones around the world. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Beacon Hill lawmakers say they'll keep working to pass a supplemental spending measure for the state's emergency shelter system. The formal session ended yesterday without an agreement between the House and Senate. Both branches approved plans that include more than $250 million in funding for the shelter system. Aaron Michaelwitz is the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. He says his branch is committed to requiring the Healy administration to either provide an overflow site for families or lift the shelter capacity limit. We feel very strongly that without a real plan to protect those that are above the 7,500 family cap, we need to be reevaluating what we're, uh, you know, how we're going forward. And I think that our, our plan sets a course of making sure that those that are over the cap at least have a place to temporarily stay while they're going through the waitlist process. Negotiations will now take place during informal sessions. A teenager wounded in the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting has been released from a Boston hospital. The family of 16-year-old Gavin Robitaille says he left Mass General for Children's yesterday, three weeks after the shooting. Congressman Seth Moulton wants Apple to explain why it abruptly ended a show featuring political comedian Jon Stewart from its streaming platform. Last month, the New York Times reported Stewart told his staff the cancellation was over concerns Apple executives had about topics involving China. Moulton signed onto a letter asking Apple to further explain the decision. This morning, the congressman told CNN he and his colleagues are concerned about the influence the Chinese government can have over American corporations. That's really the heart of the matter, is is China dictating what Apple does and doesn't do in China? Uh, That's of real concern to us, and we hope to find out. The lawmakers gave Apple one month to respond to the request. It's 8.33. 
WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. The Celtics' winning streak is up to four games. They beat the Sixers 117-107 to last night in Philadelphia. The Seas will try to make it five wins in a row tomorrow when they visit the Toronto Raptors. Highs in the low 60s today under sunny skies. Mid-40s tonight and skies stay clear. Highs in the mid-60s for our Friday tomorrow. We'll have a mix of sun and clouds. It's 47 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. On Friday, SpaceX is set to launch the second test flight of the most powerful rocket ever built. It's called Starship, and it's part of a plan to put humans on Mars, ultimately, and to help NASA return humans to the moon for the first time in half a century. Those are ambitious plans, but employees at the company owned by Elon Musk face work conditions that are far more dangerous than elsewhere in the industry. That is according to an investigation by Reuters reporter Marissa Taylor, who is with us now in our studios here in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Good morning. So how much riskier is it to work at SpaceX than other companies in the same business? Well, in our investigation, we looked at uh, worker safety uh, injury rates and compared it to the rest of the industry. And we found that it, at certain facilities, it was much higher. Brownsville, for example, where they're launching uh, there tomorrow, it, it's, it's expected, is six times higher uh, than the average. Are there any particular stories or cases that stood out to you in your reporting? We found that uh, many workers uh, were experiencing injuries. We documented 600 uh, injuries um, from uh, 2014, and we found many of them were very serious. Uh, one of them, uh, a worker, was um, hit by a component that malfunctioned and hit him in the head, and he is still in the coma right now to this day. Hmm, I guess. So, so what are the factors that contribute to these these high injury rates, especially when you compare them to other people in the same field? Obviously, it's a very specific line of work, but but what why? What's going on is that at this point, uh, they're um, doing a lot of manufacturing work. It's, it's a, a much more industrial work than um, has ever actually been done in this um, private industry now. And uh, they're doing uh, things like um, uh, pushing to manufacture uh, rockets faster and cheaper. And as a result, uh, workers tell, told us that this, these uh, deadlines, this push and rush, um, has caused uh, many unnecessary injuries. You know, one of the things that stood out to me in your report was that for years, SpaceX did not report injury numbers to OSHA. That is the federal agency that is tasked with monitoring worker safety. But they're required to do so. So how were they able to get away with not reporting? 
It's a it's a good question. Um, we actually asked OSHA, which is the agency in charge of worker safety, uh, directly about this, and uh, they did not respond to our questions. Uh, it, it is something that was required beginning in 2016, and uh, for many years they they disregarded it. Um, and in the end, uh, when they began to start re- reporting their injuries to OSHA as required, it, it indeed they found that uh, the injury rates were much higher. Hmm. How has SpaceX responded to your findings, if, if at all? Uh, we put our questions and described our findings to SpaceX, and uh, they never responded. Hmm. Not at all? Not at all. And what about any elected officials or people who represent these workers who are, who, you know, presumably the constituents of somebody, have they taken notice of this? Uh, so far, we haven't, we haven't heard from any elected officials. That is Reuters investigative reporter Marissa Taylor. Marissa, thank you so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you very much. Rookie federal firefighters on the front lines of America's wildfire crisis only make about $15 an hour, and that's actually a higher wage than it was thanks to a temporary pay bump approved by President Biden in 2021. Congress has been considering several measures making the raise permanent, but as NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, it looks like only a temporary extension can happen for now. In the wildland firefighting world right now, Congress's budget dysfunctions are a big distraction for firefighters, who Tom Dillon says are all talking about the future of their paychecks when they should be focusing on firefighting tactics and training and keeping communities safe. It's kind of a slap in the face. Dillon is a captain with the Alpine Hotshots, an elite federal crew based out of Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. The folks on Capitol Hill, some of them aren't even aware of who we are and what we do and that there is a federal wildland firefighting workforce. There are some 17,000 federal wildland firefighters. Most work for the U.S. Forest Service and start at about $34,000 a year if you're lucky enough to not be seasonal. For the last two years, most saw a temporary $20,000 pay increase. Firefighters like Mike Alba from the Los Padres National Forest in California considered it a lifeline. For myself, I'm able to spend time with my kids more. I'm able to take them on a vacation. Now that the U.S. House narrowly averted another government shutdown, Alba will likely keep his higher pay until early January. Morale is low. Three guys on his engine alone have quit for better pay and benefits in nearby L.A. or Cal Fire, and he doesn't blame them. They give us a little bit of taste like, hey, you know what, we got you. Here you go. We're giving you incentive. We want you guys to stay. And now it's oh, you know, we we might not give it to you now. It might not pass. It's like, come on. It's like, we're, we're worth it. You know, we are worth the squeeze. The union representing federal employees is warning that based on its surveys, at least 30 percent of the federal force could quit if pay isn't permanently boosted. Meanwhile, climate and forest management issues are only making wildfires more severe and deadly. In Colorado, Tom Dillon says the budget impasse is already affecting recruitment for next year. They are looking for things like work-life balance. They are looking for things like time off. Um, They are looking to not live in vans any longer. The firefighters called this week's latest budget deal a Band-Aid. A bigger bill making the pay bumps permanent and adding benefits for firefighters has gone nowhere for well over a year. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. 
Threats and reports of bias incidents against Jews, Arabs, and Muslims in the United States have soared since the start of the Israel-Hamas war last month. Today on All Things Considered, NPR's Ryan Lucas reports on what the Justice Department is doing to combat Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. This is NPR News. A heads up that the Boston University Bridge remains blocked before Commonwealth Avenue because of a protest. Police are letting pedestrians and cyclists through, but cars remain blocked. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report examines the U.S. Postal Service's efforts to become profitable. It was a bad sign for those efforts this week when UPS announced a $6.5 billion net loss for the fiscal year ending September 30th. Sunny and low 60s today. Clear skies and mid-40s tonight. Partly sunny and mid-60s tomorrow. It's 48 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. Sports bettors wagered more money last month than they have since legal sports betting first launched in Massachusetts back in January. Altogether, people bet nearly $572 million on sporting events in October. That translates to around $39 million in tax revenue for the state. The state's gaming commission says most of the bids were made online. The Massachusetts Convention Center Authority is at odds over the future of a development project in South Boston. The authority's executive director is recommending the Boston-based Cronin Group to develop the project next to the Boston Convention Center. But the Boston Globe reports the MCCA's new board chair will not take up the recommendation today as planned. Instead, the chair says the board needs more time to consider its options. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu together. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A much-awaited federal report released this week concludes climate change is hitting New England hard. But the National Climate Assessment also found that this region leads the nation in passing laws to address climate change. WBUR climate and environment correspondent Barbara Moran is here with more takeaways for our area. Good morning. Morning, Rupa. What is the biggest overall impact explored in this report that we're feeling in this area? 
I think there was this idea people thought that climate change was going to be kind of a gradual thing we'd get used to. But we're seeing now weird weather effects and sort of one on top of another, right? Like freezing when we don't expect it and then a drought. A good example is Massachusetts this summer, if you remember what happened to all the, yeah, the farms. Lots of rain. Yeah. I went out and talked to this one farmer, David Fisher, and he runs a farm in Conway, Mass. All the rain just wiped out his farm. When it's already saturated and you pour water on it, we can't hold any more water. And so the river rises with an inch of rain or, you know, we flood with two and a half inches of rain. I mean, that's unheard of, but it just doesn't take anything to push it over the brink. So all of this is leading to these so-called billion-dollar disasters. So the U.S. used to see, you know, maybe a couple of these a year. And now we're seeing, on average, a billion-dollar disaster every three weeks. Yeah, that's a lot. It's unbelievable. Yeah, we've already had two in the Northeast this year so far, the uh, cold snap in February and these rains in July. Okay, let's dig into some of the specifics. I imagine sea level rise and storm surge are really big issues here that were explored in the report. Yeah. Massachusetts has about 1,500 miles of coastline. Most people live on the coast. And the prediction from the report is that sea level will rise about 11 inches by 2050. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's like a foot, right? And that's more than it's gone up in the last 100 years. That's a lot of downtown. It's a lot of downtown, a lot of the North Shore, a lot of the South Shore, right? So... How we've dealt with it in the past is build walls, build seawalls, and those are already starting to collapse. Instead of building a gray wall, you build a salt marsh, or you put out what they call cobble berms, which are the melon-sized rocks on a beach, and that sort of breaks up the waves. So we're really sort of leading in, in that. And what about the question of if we should be retreating from the coastline. Yes, nobody wants to talk about that here. Hmm. It's very interesting. Other parts of the country are starting to talk about this, and it's been pretty absent. I know this report is mandated to come out every four years or so. It was a little bit closer to five years this year. But this year, they also talked to indigenous communities about how they're working on this issue. What are indigenous communities in our area doing? Indigenous communities in the United States and in New England have a history of being sort of shoved off their land, right? The first thing I see in a lot of their climate plans are, if we have to move, we're in control of it. And the other thing is this really holistic approach, right? They're like any sort of climate plan needs to incorporate these animals and plants that are important to our culture. So it's really interesting to see and I think a good model for the rest of the country. Okay, now finally, when the national news about this report came out this week, the big headlines were about unequal impacts. In other words, the people who are least responsible for climate change are the ones who are being most affected by that. What are we doing about that here in Massachusetts? Yeah, so Massachusetts is creating a lot of laws and grant programs. One recent example is they created a $50 million grant program to fund retrofits in low and moderate income housing. And one other thing Massachusetts has done is they created this whole new position called the Undersecretary of Environmental Justice and Equity. And the first person they put in the job is a woman named Maria Belen Power. She talked to me about why it's important to put environmental justice at the forefront. The stakes are pretty high. This is about people's lives. It's about whether or not communities of color, low-income communities will be able to thrive and survive the climate crisis. And she also went on to say that climate change offers a really great opportunity. We have this historic chance to make this investment where we could have, you know, more public parks and cleaner air and cheaper electricity and good jobs. And 
everybody could get a piece of it. WBUR climate and environment correspondent Barbara Moran, thank you very much. Thanks so much. You can learn more about what the National Climate Assessment says about New England by visiting WBUR.org and get even more by checking out today's episode of our podcast, The Common. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll look at the new government taking shape in Spain four months after elections, plus a new gene therapy in the UK aimed at curing two blood disorders. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Trefflers, specializing in the restoration of furniture, decorative arts, paintings, and upholstery by skilled artisans. Custom framing, too, in Newton and at treffler.com. Few figures in Hollywood have achieved more success or controversy than Tyler Perry. A new documentary charts Perry's journey from the black theater circuit to the big screen to becoming one of the dominant forces in Hollywood. And it notes the criticism he's faced along the way. Wanted to give that type of transparency to both sides of the story. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. President Biden is expected to sign a budget deal today that avoids a government shutdown but does not include aid for Ukraine or Israel. The U.S. and China have agreed to work together to curb fentanyl production. And workers at Starbucks nationwide, including some in Massachusetts, are on a one-day strike today saying that Starbucks is not negotiating with unionized workers in good faith. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot. Partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com Sunny today. It'll be in the low 60s. Clear skies tonight and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow in the mid-60s. It's 48 degrees in Boston. Tackling discrimination in Internet access. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. First, the Senate has passed a temporary government funding package, which President Biden is expected to sign, averting a shutdown for now, gives Congress roughly two more months to figure out a longer-term funding solution. In some parts of the country, broadband internet is either unavailable, extremely slow, or too expensive. Now, the Federal Communications Commission is promising to hold internet providers accountable if they are found to have discriminated against communities based on characteristics such as race and income. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. The Federal Communications Commission has been traveling the country to hear stories about lack of broadband internet access and how it's affected people in all walks of life. Their last meeting was in Topeka, Kansas, where Felicia Welch, with the state's Department for Children and Families, outlined struggles of clients ranging from senior citizens to school children. The digital inequality affects Kansans of all ages, all races, rural and urban. Parents who are working If they do not have access to internet, they have to take time off work to enroll their children in school.
School enrollment is done online. The FCC will now have a framework to decide if digital inequality is based on federally protected characteristics. That's a new tool for the agency, which it plans to use to crack down on Internet providers, which offer limited to no high-speed Internet or charge too much in rural areas and communities historically disadvantaged by practices such as redlining. The National Cable and Telecommunications Association, a trade group, said the new rules were too expansive and claimed authority that Congress had not granted the FCC, such as oversight over discounts, credit checks, and other business practices. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Yesterday's in-person meeting between President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping, their first in a year, ended on a largely positive note. Biden described the four hours of talks near San Francisco as their most productive and constructive yet. Xi Jinping said Beijing was ready to be a friend and partner to Washington. Here's the BBC's Helena Humphrey. The White House said that these conversations were candid and they were also constructive with agreements for cooperation on a range of issues. Firstly, talking about military to military cooperation, perhaps making the world feel like a slightly safer place, particularly bearing in mind some of those close calls that we've seen between U.S. and Chinese military assets, for example, with regards to planes in recent months over the South China Sea. Now, at least they can pick up the phone army to army and make sure things aren't misinterpreted. The BBC's Helena Humphrey, President Biden, some hours after that meeting, doubled down on his description of Xi Jinping as a dictator. A spokesperson for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs called the comment irresponsible. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the one to two tenths percent range with the Dow future down 41 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 4.463 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Veterans develop some unique skills while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, but those skills sometimes go unrecognized by employers, even as businesses are still struggling to hire enough workers. This is the subject of new research from the consulting firm McKinsey, which is looking to make it easier to veterans, uh, easier for veterans to transition to civilian jobs. Scott Blackburn is a senior partner at McKinsey and co-author of the report and joins us. Uh, hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Obviously, all veterans are not the same. They're not a monolith. But overall, how do veterans do in the job market compared to the rest of the population? Overall, veterans actually do quite well when you, you take a look at them. I think most employers understand the value that many veterans bring, right? Great teamwork. They, they work hard. I think where the problem starts to begin is, is when you start segmenting the veterans. But I think overall, uh, veterans actually do quite well. Sliding into a new job can be difficult if you do not have a college degree. And 61% of all veterans do not have one. How does that factor into how things go for them in the job market? It can be really tough. And I think the employers want to hire veterans, but they don't really understand what their skills necessarily translate to. There's often not a one-to-one -one direct job transfer. 
And also, most jobs have some kind of degree requirement. I think approximately 80% of jobs in the U.S. You mentioned, you know, that many veterans carry a specific skill set. Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I presume discipline, organization, there are a lot of other traits that probably come out of military service. Discipline, you know, showing up on time, things like that, like everybody thinks of, you know, great teamwork. But what people don't necessarily realize, if you take the traditional infantrymen, you know, for example, they are operating some extremely high-tech equipment. And they have to become masters of those high-tech pieces of equipment. So they tend to be very tech-savvy. So what is it about the traditional hiring process that you think needs to change in order for employers to recognize the potential and the skills that come with military service? So I think it comes in two steps. I think number one is more and more employers, and I think now north of of 15 or 16 states, are going and removing degree-based hiring and and attempting to replace that with skill-based hiring. I think the second step is then translating those skills You know, some jobs are direct correlations. It could be pilots or aircraft mechanics. But there are other things like the example I mentioned before, where, you know, somebody has other skills that they've developed over the course of the military. And how do you kind of capture that? How do you credential that? Scott Blackburn is a senior partner at McKinsey and co-author of a new report titled From the Military to the Workforce, How to Leverage Veterans' Skills. Thank you so much. Thank you. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. We'll get a couple nice days in the 60s today and tomorrow before a rainy Saturday. Low 60s today and sunny, mid-40s tonight, and some clouds move in overnight for a partly cloudy day tomorrow in the mid-60s. Some rain on Saturday. It's 49 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.